Thank you, Matt. Welcome. The lovely Matt, everybody. <clears throat> I wish I'd have never said anything. <laughs> have you guys ever heard of uh, dopamine fasting? It's a new trend right now. Dopamine fasting. It's okay. So, Dr. Cameron Seppa devised it as a form of therapy where people become less dominated by what could be unhealthy stimuli. All the texts, the notifications, the beeps, the rings, everything that accompanies living in a highly technology-driven society. So instead of automatically responding to these reward-inducing cues, these potentially dopamine-inducing cues, which provide us you know, with that immediate short-term charge, he thinks we ought to allow our brains to take breaks and, and rest from this, which is potentially rest from what can be potentially addicting behavior. Uh, so his idea is that allowing ourselves to find contentment in doing simpler, more uh, singularly focused things allows us to have better control over our, our lives and we won't be as compulsive on so many things. It's interesting. Apparently, it's very popular. I just discovered it not that long ago. I can see why it's popular. Uh, we're, we're probably the most stimuli bombarded people in all of history, uh, right now. And it has this cumulative effect of making us some of the most stressed out people in all of history, especially here within our nation. Still, technology is not the only thing that can keep us pulled in every direction all the time. As humans, we just sort of tend towards seeking a reward through busyness, that, that dopamine rush that we can get from a sense of accomplishment or from the congratulations and acceptance and approval of our peers. So in our text today, Jesus is going to address something about this, challenging us to find a singular focus for life, one that becomes the basis for all of life's other pursuits. So we're continuing our study in Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, which I highly recommend you do, you can find your way to Luke 10, please. If you don't own a Bible or have a Bible, back where Frank is sitting under the welcome board, uh, we have Bibles there. You're more than welcome to go grab one, and that would be yours. Uh, we're in a section that chronicles Jesus' uh, uh, journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, where the final stages of Jesus' earthly ministry are, are going to unfold. Uh, so this is in Luke chapter 10. That's where I need you to turn if I didn't say that already. Last week we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, a parable that we're overly familiar with, uh, but one that was fairly shocking to the first hearers of it. We considered the message of that story. We learned that a neighbor isn't somebody that we go out and find. A neighbor is someone that we become uh, as we live in this world. Now today we're going to read a short vignette that Luke inserts into the narrative which continues this theme of upsetting cultural assumptions concerning God's activity. Um, we're going to read the entire section of this passage today because it's pretty short. And then I want to dig into it. I want to step back into it, dig into it, and, and analyze it a little bit, examine this and see what it is that it may be trying to teach us. So if you're there in Luke chapter 10... We're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 38. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into, their, into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. 
she came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits there while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, so Mary and Martha, if they are the same Mary and Martha that we find in John's gospel, they're the sisters of Lazarus. That was the man that Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. He, they lived uh, in Bethany, so it appears that this story may not be in chronological order, but it's definitely thematically connected. Uh, it appears that this family hosted Jesus on more than one occasion, and he's likely a regular guest at their house. And we have to realize that hospitality in the ancient Near East was a prominent feature for them. In fact, there were a lot of societal expectations on being a good host to visitors, to how you treated and cared for them, providing for them and protecting them. In an honor and shame culture like that was, seeing to it that guests were fed would have been a primary concern for a host of visitors. So we're probably familiar with this story. I mean, most of us at least have had a, you know, had a passing visit with this story. And it's likely that if we are familiar with it, we'll skim over it as just another value study. You know, I got it. Don't be so busy. Uh, make sure you spend time with Jesus. Check, check. Let's, all right, let's move on. Get on with, with things. And apparently, this is something that I didn't know, but this is within Christian circles. Sometimes women are confronted uh, with accusations of being Martha's. Like if they find themselves very busy in life, all of a sudden somebody will take it upon themselves to say, oh, you're being, just, you're being a Martha. You got to stop that or whatever. Uh, it's, it's kind of a backhanded uh, encouragement. But, uh, and and I'm, not, I'm not convinced that's the, the idea that we were supposed to take away from this story. But like with the story that we read last week, there's more going on here than what a surface reading can actually tell us. Just like last week, there's some shocking stuff that's happening uh, in this vignette. On the surface, it's actually kind of puzzling. I mean, Jesus has just told us to, to go and be a good neighbor to others. You know, and, he's, and he finished it off saying, go and do this. In other words, go and be willing to serve people. Uh, and then now we've got somebody who's serving people like that. And Jesus seems to indicate that, that it's inappropriate. So like, what is it? Uh, are we supposed to do or not do, Jesus? So, so we have to step back. Let's take a look at this scene that's described for us. Jesus and the gang, they're all over at this, uh, this house, at Martha's house. They've shown up. She's a good host. She sets out to prepare a meal for these travelers. So maybe she's setting up a nice risotto and getting some appetizers all ready to go. And meanwhile, Jesus gets back to what Jesus does. He's teaching. He's just right away teaching. Obviously, he's teaching the 12 disciples that travel with him. Um, it's very possible there are others there as well. There's a large number in the traveling party, so you never know. Maybe there's a big crowd uh, around him there. And, and, and so Jesus is there. He's teaching. People have all gathered around him to listen. While, Mar- while Martha is busy in the kitchen, it says that Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening. And we have to understand that that phrase, sat at his feet, does not mean that Mary was literally sitting at Jesus' feet, like looking adoringly up at him or something like you see in the paintings. The phrase carries the idea of being a student. 
Paul described his status as the disciple of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 22 by saying, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Didn't mean he was literally at Gamaliel's feet. It meant he was a student. He was, he was a student of this rabbi with the intention of himself becoming a rabbi. So that means that Mary is sitting with those who are listening to for the purpose of living out Jesus's instructions. In other words, Mary is being a disciple of Jesus in this moment. One who learns how to live from their teacher, in this case, Jesus. And this, what Mary is doing, this is the one thing that Jesus, in response to Martha, says is important. The thing that commands all of life's attention. So this is actually telling us that living from and learning, learning from and living for Jesus is the one important thing for us to do. There's one important thing in life. This is what Jesus actually says in this. There's one important thing. Mary's discovered it. And this is it. This is, this is life. This is the core from which we understand our identity. Every other priority and pursuit in life only finds its meaning and purpose in this one thing, living for and learning from Jesus. Maybe the other way around, learning from and living for Jesus. That's the life of a disciple. This, this is sort of the header for what this vignette is teaching us. Life is filled with all kinds of things that are vying for our attention. Like we just said at the outset, so many beeps and buzzes and dings that are trying to get our attention to call for us. Life is filled with all sorts of things that demand our, our commitment. But Jesus narrows it down to one important thing above everything else. Learning from and living for Jesus. Well, what does that mean in, in real life, Rob? Well, when you say that, does that mean I can't cook for anybody? You know, like the family's hungry. I'm following Jesus. I'm not doing any of that. No. Okay, here's the thing. This is about learning, right? This is the, the thematically, this is what he's talking about. Learning. Listen, she's sitting there. She's learning. How it is that she's going to live? And, and this is primary what, what, what's happening here. Because we are all learning. All the time. As human beings, we are always learning. That's just a reality. We're getting information nowadays at breakneck speed. We have access to news and opinions 24 hours a day. We have massive amounts of TV shows and movies and literature and music. And all of it carries a message. And all of it has a worldview. And that's not to say that we shouldn't ever be paying attention to those things. Certainly we want to be aware and know, and, and, and there's even things to be gained from that. But if we spend 14 hours a week listening to Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity and 15 or 35 minutes a week listening to someone like me talking about the Bible, we are being discipled, but not by Jesus. We're getting a worldview, but is it Christ's worldview? Ah, so this is about reading my Bible more, Rob. No, well, really, it's about priorities. We are called to one important thing, and the rest of our living will be informed by that one important thing. It's about seeing to it that in all of our doing and in all of our hearing, we hear and we do it through Christ so that he is centric in it all. Now, that's the overall idea making sure that following Christ is the dominant feature of our life. But there's some cool stuff in the details of this story that we don't want to miss as well. 
Like the fact that, that Mary is there. Excuse me, I got a cough drop. I got to chew it up real quick because it's just ruining everything. A little music with that would have been nice. Either way, the very fact that Mary is there learning to be a disciple from Jesus, this, this is amazing. This is really, this is one of those turn the tables over moments here. This is an activity of those who are intending to be rabbis themselves. Mary is present in that activity. And not only is she not excluded, she's validated in doing that. Validated by none other than Jesus himself. And this tells us something else that's very important to remember, that this one important thing overrules any other cultural expectations that are placed on us in life. Now, the scholar N.T. Wright believes that that's the whole point of this story. Uh, I think that's something you'd have to think over. I'm not totally convinced that was the only point of this. But it is a pretty shocking event, given its historic and cultural context. Because just like Jesus shocked his listeners last week by painting a picture of the Samaritan as the hero of this story, people whom the prevailing culture saw as enemies, we now have another assumption that gets turned on its head. I mean, Jesus has just validated a woman's equal place in representing this kingdom project, and I find that powerful. It's almost hidden there in this thing, but it's, it's right there, plain for us to see if we'll take the time to pay attention and pay attention to the surrounding culture of that, because that's what we really have to know. You don't catch it on the surface, but if you spend one moment, really it doesn't take long, doesn't take a lot of research to find out the prevailing attitudes and mindset of first century Israel at that time. In Jesus' day, women received minimal education, most received none whatsoever. Women only learned domestic duties, cooking and sewing and making clothes and all of that. Women didn't have, for the most part, as best we can tell, women didn't have even a really good grasp of the Hebrew language in speech, much less being able to write it. People spoke Aramaic in those days. It wasn't, you know, the common language was not Hebrew. People would speak Hebrew in different contexts, but being able to read it or write it or speak it fluently, that was the domain of men. Meaning that most women in that context were illiterate. Rabbis didn't believe in teaching women because in their reading of Deuteronomy 4.9, it says, teach these things to your sons And so they felt that meant women were exempted from the command to learn the Torah. And in fact, according to the Talmud, and I'm quoting here, and this is a quote of the, of the, of the kinder, gentler version of this. One rabbi said, it is foolishness to teach Torah to your daughter. Now, that's in the Talmud. That's, that's the things that Jesus referred to as the traditions of men, something that he condemned, something that he didn't endorse. But it still shows us the prevailing thought of that time. Women were not to be listening and learning and sitting with the men gaining this information. Women weren't allowed to testify in court. Their, their testimony wasn't considered valid, which lumped them into the same category as Gentiles, minors, mentally challenged, and criminals. They were also not allowed to testify, and their word meant nothing. Women were separated from men in public as well as religious life. They could go to the temple, but they had to stay well within the confines of the women's court. Same held true for the synagogue. Women weren't allowed to just go anywhere they pleased. They were relegated to a specific spot. 
They weren't allowed to participate in any public prayers in the temple. Even though we had so many female heroes of the Old Testament, by Jesus' day, women had been relegated to a status of near invisibility. One Jewish scholar, uh, Java Glasser, writes, very likely this degraded view of a woman's role was imported from Greek thought. The similarities between the Hellenistic and Talmudic views of women are remarkable. So think about this. Through the influence of their heathen neighbors, the rabbis slowly relegated women to their first century seclusion. The idea that a woman is aspiring to do anything that exceeded the cultural expectations of her was scandalous in that. And Mary, sitting there with the men, learning from Jesus as a disciple, is scandalizing Martha. That's largely what's happening in this. She sees this as an affront, and she's appealing to Jesus to straighten it out. Jesus, correct my sister's behavior here. Tell her to stay in her lane. Tell her to get back in her place. Restore order and our accepted boundaries that we have. But Jesus passionately defends Mary and her choice to sit and listen. And in so doing, he is shrugging off hundreds of years of patriarchal domination. And he affirms women's roles as full-fledged representatives of God's kingdom on this earth. And implicitly, he's inviting Martha to join in on that and be one of the disciples as well. And listen, this touches more than just gender issues. It challenges every limitation that gets placed on people by peers or society or the church or religious expectations. This clearly shows us that God does not do boxes. He's going to empower and commission whomever he wants to, and he really doesn't care that much about our opinion in all of this. Whoever we are, we're called to commit to living for and learning from Jesus, and he will use us for his glory, no matter who we are. I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit on servants, men and women alike. Joel 2, which in Acts 2 says was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came to the church. None of the barriers that humans devise can withstand the purposes of God in our lives. Okay, so... Martha sees Mary learning with the men and she slams down the tray of jalapeno poppers that she was bringing out. Great. Oh, this is just great. Mary is just so edgy and radical learning with the dudes, but that just leaves me with stirring the risotto and serving the appetizers. She feels overwhelmed by the responsibility. She's scandalized by what's happening, but also by what's happening, she's suddenly left with a greater sense of responsibility because, you know, this is aren't going to do themselves. And in verse 40, it says that she was distracted by the meal being prepared. In the Greek, that word means something akin to being pulled in all directions. And we know that feeling, don't we? I mean, we, you know, it's, it's stress-inducing when we're being pulled every which way. Oftentimes, it's, it's that stuff that's even only happening in our own headspace, that irritating voice that reminds us of what we could or maybe should be doing. 
You said you were going to go to the gym and exercise today. Yeah, but the kids need school clothes. And I said I'd go take care of them. It's taking a long time because you know how kids are. You were supposed to paint today. But, you know, I got to get to the bank right now before it closes. You were going to play video games with your kids. Well, if I don't finish this work, we're not going to be able to afford video games to be playing anyway. And we get pulled in so many directions in our modern society. And it's tough to navigate all the different demands that we face. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans feel stressed weekly, according to one report. So, I mean, we get Martha. She's us. We certainly can relate to her. And I love how Jesus responds. In the NLT, it says, my dear Martha. In the Greek, her name is repeated. Martha, Martha. It's, it's, a, it's a, indicating a sympathetic emphasis. You're so worried about all these details, but one thing is worth your concern. One thing of overarching importance. Start there and it will affect all the other aspects of your life, all the other things that have to be attended to. In other words, the one important thing of learning from and living for Jesus will bring focus to our lives. It will help us in in this modern society. It will help us find focus. The one important thing can lead us to a coping life that's not dominated by the stress of being pulled so many different directions. Now, we need to see that Jesus wasn't scolding Martha for being busy. He's not suggesting, I actually heard this said, actually read it said this way. He's not suggesting that she should have just made one dish. Like, just make a pizza, Martha. That's what you should have been doing. He knows she's busy. He gets that. He's not talking about the actual food that's being prepared. It's not meant to add to our stress by making us feel bad for being busy. As Americans, I don't think there's any way around it. We are a busy society. What Jesus is trying to encourage Martha is to see things as they really are in terms of importance. He called her by name, did it twice in the Greek. Martha, Martha. He's letting her know that he sees her and that he knows her. And he's letting her know that she isn't defined by what she's able to accomplish. Martha, I care about you. I, I know you and you're important to me. Whether the risotto gets overcooked or not, you are what's important to me, is what Jesus is communicating here. The whole reason that we experience this stress is that we tend to define ourselves by what we can accomplish, or worse, define ourselves by what we can't accomplish, or as people who can't accomplish anything. But that is not who we are. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here. All this dinner prep, that's not who you are, Martha. You are someone to me. You are Martha. Martha. You're not risotto. You're not the appetizers. You are Martha. The one important thing of living for and learning from Jesus reminds us of who we are. We are children of God children whom he loves. We are friends of the Most High. We are image bearers of God in this world. Whether we get the periphery stuff done or not, we are the beloved in Christ. That doesn't change. Now, 
I can stand up here and say this stuff all day long, and it sounds great. But like Paul, I want to make it clear. I am not saying this from a position of having achieved this, and I'm at this plateau and telling you little people how to do this. This is probably more for me than anyone else here. But when life is pressing in, and the responsibilities are there and are pulling every direction, one thing I try to do, I remind myself of who I am, of who I belong to, and where I'm going. That's what's important. Honestly, I've got the the luxury of a wife who reminds me of those things too. Rob, this is not who you are. Settle down, calm down, sit down, all those kinds of things. The one important thing living for and learning from Jesus can bring focus to our lives and can help in beginning to alleviate that stress, remembering who we are, remembering that we're loved, taking a deep breath, It's okay. It's okay. None of this affects whether or not I am God's child. Now, we have to understand that Jesus wasn't saying in this, you know, some sort of like, it's not like a hippie philosophy, like, chill out, man. Nothing matters. Don't do any work anymore, baby. He's not refuting a good work ethic in this, but he's talking about our priorities. There's one important thing. There's one thing in life that's really, really important that must be attended to if we want the rest of life to flow out in a healthy way. Living for and learning from Jesus from which all of our life's other activities will flow. He's not saying don't make risotto. He's saying risotto isn't as important. So see to it that our work is the outflow of living for Jesus. Does that make sense? Do you see what we're saying in that? And listen, I've told this was an illustration that was made around, and I've told this illustration before, but I mean, come on, after 26 years, I'm bound to repeat something along the way. So there's this story of a philosophy teacher uh, who was instructing his class, and he pulled out a big glass jar from underneath his desk, and he put it on the table, and he began to fill it up with larger rocks, fist-sized rocks, and he put them in the jar and filled it all the way to the top. And he asked his students, is this jar full? And they said, yeah, it is. He goes, no, it's not. And he reached under his desk and he pulled out a bag of gravel and he poured the gravel and it filled up all the space in between the rocks. And he said, is this jar full now? And of course, the more student students realized, oh, okay, no, it's not. What? And so he reached under his desk and pulled out a bag of sand and he poured the sand down in the jar and it filled up all the space between the gravel. And he said, is it full yet? And they're like, probably not. I don't know. And he reached under his desk and he pulled out a jar of water. He poured the water in and the water filled up all the spaces to the very top. And he said, do you know what I'm trying to teach you here? And one student said, well, that, you know, even though we think our lives are filled up, there's still room for something else. And he said, no. The lesson is if you don't put the big rocks in first, you're never going to fit them in at all. But it's a great point. We don't put those big rocks in there first. We're not going to be able to make space for them. God's not eliminating the gravel and the sand and the water. The work and the responsibilities we have in life, he just wants us to prioritize the rocks. See to it that we're living for and learning from Jesus. See to it that that is foundational to our sense of identity and then let everything else flow from there. In my life, I wear a lot of different hats. You know, I'm, a, I'm a father, I'm a husband, 
Uh, you know, I, I work as an artist, but I'm also a pastor. I do a lot of different things. Sometimes I'm sanding drywall, but, you know, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things. But all of that, anything that you could ascribe to me flows from this one important thing. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He saved me. He rescued me from the pit that I was in. He put my feet on solid ground. He called me forward into his kingdom to represent him in this world. That is who I am. That is who I am. Anything else that I do flows from that, from that reality. So let's learn this lesson from Mary and Martha. Let's discover, as Mary did, that one important thing. Let's see to it that no man-made boundary intimidates us from fulfilling God's purposes in our lives. And let's find our focus by choosing to prioritize that one important thing. It's from Jesus' lips. One important thing. Mary found it. It's never going to be taken away from her. You want something secure, something that you'll hold on to that will never let you go? That's that one important thing. Learn from and live for our Savior Jesus. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand up with us, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples that it provides to us. We thank you for all the different ways in which we can learn and grow and, and find you in the process of this. As we gathered here today to present ourselves before your word, I pray that you, by your spirit, have your way with us transform us and shape us and mold us into the human beings you intended us to be. Help us to live from that sense of identity that we belong to you, that you know us and that you love us. And whether we accomplish great things or can barely get out of bed, you love us and that never changes. Help us to find our security and our wholeness in that reality above all other things. Let it bring us peace, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.